0: This is writer and game designer, Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth
1: brought to you by Pilgrim Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
1: Easy-playing NPCs. Ken in Cuba. And our top ten movies of 2016.
0: when Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely
1: familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are.
0: It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies Clifford, the Big Red God, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness.
1: Which makes delightfully subversive gifts... For friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's
0: Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems... wise. The rattle of dice, the thump
1: of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here, in the Gaming Hut, Peter Frampton might even be Michael Bolton, because things be so easy here. (laughs) We're talking about making NPCs easy, and I'm sure that that could be some sort of Really annoying acronym, but instead we're going to get into the meat of it. Robin, how do you make an easy NPC to play rather than a spiky, difficult, annoying... Well, I guess they can still be annoying, but they should be easy and annoying, or just
0: easy. Right. They, They should be annoying to the characters, if that is their role in the narrative, without being annoying to the players or you, the GM, as you attempt to play them. So... My big thesis here is simplicity, that often if you read rule source books that provide a lot of information on the backstories of NPCs, they contain a lot of information. And guess what? Is that information going to get through to the player interface unless the characters sit down with that character and say, hey, tell us your life story and your whole biography and where in Sweden were you in the 1100s? And then you moved on. I see. Okay. And then he was in Constantinople. And what would you say is your greatest strength? Yes. Well, <laughs> my, my greatest strength is that I try too hard to fight the paladin and keep my treasure. I care too much about being on the other side of this door. I'm, I'm really a people goblin too much of a people goblin. Yes, exactly. So the, uh, idea is how do you create a, a character uh, and I guess partly I'm thinking here about as a writer of scenarios and background material, but also just as a, a GM sitting at the table, how do you play a character that is actually the important thing about them is going to get through to the players? So as in a uh, character in a movie who's not the protagonist, but is a supporting player, you want to have a really easy hook to identify that character from. And the first question you want to ask yourself is, what is this character's role in the narrative? Now, it might be that you're improvising a game or just that your generally uh, fleshed-out adventure has led you in an unexpected direction and you have to sort of come off the top of your head with a character whose narrative purpose you don't yet understand because you don't know where the players are going with it. But even then, you want to have something about that character that is easy for you to convey to them and therefore that they will uh, remember well and perhaps even find interesting. And so uh, let's look at the different uh, things that you can do when you know you need a character. So let's start, Ken, with an example of a case where you know the role of a character in the narrative and the, the role of this character is it's a nosy reporter who is going to cause additional static for the characters by... Investigating them while they're investigating the mystery. So, how would you go about latching on to a really great hook for that character to make him easy for you to play and convey to the players?
1: If you've got something as strongly defined as Nosy Reporter and something that's as commonly done, what I would do is I would lean into my favorite. You know, cinematic or TV portrayal of a nosy reporter. And it might even be, you know, a cinematic or TV portrayal that's done on real life TV by your Jake Tappers or whoever. If you're a devotee of the cable news, God, God forbid. But, uh, you know, you might think, okay, I'm going to do Lois Lane or I'm going to do uh, a little Columbo, but he's going to be a reporter Columbo, not a cop Columbo. And so you, or you do uh, any of the TV characters that you, can sort of fall into because you've watched them enough and just sort of lean into their performance and let them do all of the hard work. And you don't even have to do the accent. You just have sort of the mental attitude so that when you're doing Lois Lane, you don't have to sound like uh, Margot Kidder or whoever it was that played Lois in the Superman TV show. But you just say, hey, what about those mysterious lights in the sky? Don't you think that's got something to do with it or whatever? And, And you can... Just sort of lean into that as the character type and uh, play it in your head because you've already seen it done. You don't actually have to do any work and you can concentrate on getting those lights in the sky into the narrative, which is actually the reporter's job.
0: Right. And so what you're doing is you're building onto the the purpose of that character one thing that makes them a specific version of that character rather than a generalized version. So as soon as you think Lois Lane, you know, oh, well, she's sort of determined and she's really smart and, uh, you know, maybe later on you'll reveal that uh, she has this uh, mysterious champion who comes and sometimes rescues her, and, and that's, uh then it narrows that down into something specific. Uh, recently in my Yellow King game, I have had a nosy reporter uh, putting additional pressure on the characters, but he's drawn from a um, historical figure, a reporter from the Figaro in the late 19th century called uh, Georges Grisson, and uh, he was one of those reporters who had a... Uh, a persona that he projected so that makes it easier that he was you know making himself sort of a cliche so he famously uh, wore a uh, a gray overcoat and a white scarf and a top hat at all times and he was a crime reporter and even though he w- he would go into the monde and all these sort of grimy wine shops and stuff he had this sort of high bourgeois hauteur and also held the lower orders in great contempt he wrote for an ultra conservative newspaper and so when it came time to portray him in the game I a uh, gave the players that visual image and then sort of extrapolated from his contempt for outsiders to say oh well he will also be contemptuous of american students which that the player characters happen to be and so that is their hook into who he is is that he is a, an extreme uh, franco chauvinist uh, and so that's the the nature of how he's a pain in the butt to them. And so uh, now when they re-encounter him, they go, oh, yeah, this is his attitude. And then, you know, if I need to work in more uh, details later about this historical figure, I can do that. But they have a really clear hook with which to interpret that nosy reporter. So we've got our Lois Lane nosy reporter. We've got our George Grisant nosy reporter, uh, both performing the same function, but both very specific and Memorable. Ken, let's go with the example now of someone who, uh, while the uh, players are uh, sort of sandboxing around, Encounter someone who you don't yet know what he's up to in the narrative, can you uh, pull an example from your uh, wreck of the ninety seven game or d- should I hit you with a, a premise i mean there's
1: a, i mean one of the things about unknown armies is that you never know who any of the character what the characters are up to when you meet them because unknown armies is about figuring out people's role in the sort of weird sketchy occult underground that the characters are part of, so they can run into Bat Masterson who is a, a joy to play because you just play him you know, sort of like you would play Bat Masterson anyway. Be
0: yourself, if not be Bat Masterson. Right,
1: exactly. And and then letting them figure out is he the chronicler? Is he a gunfighter? Is he a a fictioneer? What's he up to? What's what's Bat Masterson's current role in in the game is is fun and and enchanting because sometimes you the GM don't know what you want to do with a really powerful, you know, universal joint like Bat Masterson. Where does he fit? Because he turns out to have been friends with people on all sides of pretty much every fight in the old west and you know in in theory he would have been a, 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 a not in theory in actuality he was a close buddy of wyatt earp but he also got along awfully well with people wyatt went after so you you can sort of play a lot of these uh people uh against the middle and i think part of that is you establish a sort of persona without giving away an agenda and the persona for bat is sort of Breezy competence and the knowledge that if he can't outdraw you, which he probably can, he has a friend in this bar who is sitting behind you with a gun right now and sort of a breezy invulnerability vulnerability, which allows him to be genuinely friendly and curious, but gives nothing away and that lets the players sort of bounce off that a little bit. And so you play the care, the personality while keeping the agenda sort of, um, uh, in, in reserve up your sleeve as it were not that bat Masterson would ever keep anything up his sleeve. He was painfully honest.
0: <laughs> not that an unknown armies character would, uh, you know, have any mysteries to, uh, to conceal. not remotely. And so at what point then, as you're sort of taking a sandboxy non-player character and turning them More specific, as the action unfolds, uh, do you do anything later to lock down how you uh, play your Bat Masterson as his role in the narrative becomes more apparent? Um, Bat, for example, once he trusts the players, treats them like the kind of
1: people who have his back, not the people who he needs to have people have the back against. Right? So... Uh, and I, I find that that's really, a, a a something that is maybe not done often enough or, or because the, the rewards are so great. And this works with bad guys as well as good guys is honest, uh, friendship and admiration of the player characters is if, you know, the player characters have come off and, and, you know, solved a problem that another NPC, a powerful NPC wanted solved, they should be rewarded and, you know, congratulated and told good job. And here's another problem similar to it for double the money or whatever, But also have the villains appreciate the player characters and maybe even try to recruit them if their solution involved a lot of casual murder, as often player character solutions do. And I find that a seemingly friendly open approach is, first of all, it's it's good for sort of varying a game that's going to involve a lot of fighting one way or the other, but also it puts players on the edge because they don't know what the guy really wants, which is great fun. No, no,
0: nothing unnerves players more than having an established bad guy be nice to them. Yep. And so uh, let's say in in this uh, final scenario that uh, you are a, G- a GM, you've got, uh, you're using a source book, and uh, there's a character that you want to use from a source book, but the writer has uh, provided you, according to the format of this source book, with 1,500 words. That's a lot of words, people. It's like, three or four pages yep. of backstory on this, uh, let's say a werewolf king. And so how do you then as a player uh, boil all of that material down into the way that you will play that werewolf king in the werewolf king's first scene?
1: First off, I mean with with someone who's got, you know, four pages of backstory, they're probably a pretty significant figure in the game. It's not the barmaid, it's not the um uh person who says, Oh, yeah don't be wantin' the cemetery, road, they be ghost tha. You, um, yeah, I mean, Werewolf King's gonna have an agenda and he's gonna have motives and he's gonna have stuff that if you do it wrong, it's gonna come back and bite the scenario in the butt. So you do need.
0: He's got too many things about him. How do we find the thing to start with?
1: First, you have to know what his motives are gonna be in general, right? Is he anti vampire, pro vampire? Where does he fall on the other stuff in the game? Or is his job to uh, block and obstruct the players at every turn? Is he a big bad? Um, find out what his real agenda is in terms of what the game is about. And then look for a any sort of personality guideline that is given you in those four pages, which might come off in, you know, in the great treaty of Cangorn, he was brutal and unpleasant to the elves, even when he had defeated them. And you're like, okay, he seems like he's sort of a jerk, Werewolf King. I'll play him like that. Or maybe it says that uh, while he is in human form, he is hale and well and hardy, but in werewolf form he turns into a monster of killing. And so you're like, okay, hale and hardy, but psychopath, sort of a Christian Bale in American Psycho type guy. Maybe a little bit of that. And so I would say look for the sort of emotional cue on the agenda and try and build a performance out of that. If he's someone big, you want to play him big. So you want to think either that um, you know, back on your maybe it's Anthony Hopkins, maybe like I say, Christian Bale in American Psycho, but a real uh major character who you've seen hold attention on a, on a movie screen or on a TV show for a time and sort of put yourself into that. And that might be, you might be thinking, well, my werewolf King's more of an Al engine type werewolf King. And obviously you might want to shy away from the vocabulary because that'll be a sheer giveaway, but the sort of <laughs> truculent approach might be what the werewolf, yeah, so the king, werewolf does. king
0: calls you a hooplehead. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, what's that going will knock on you
1: now. out of most games, not all, but most.
0: Yes, yeah. uh, Including old Western games. Yes. And just on a practical level, What I would suggest is, uh, you know, actually take a highlighter to that page in the PDF that you've printed out because, you know, we don't want to wreck our books. Uh, and, you know, highlight the phrase that's going to be your opening bid about that character that you present to the players. And then all that other stuff, the extra, uh, 1497 other words, you can work those in as necessary as the game goes along. But it's all about that sort of first impression that's going to be what uh, locks into uh, people's minds. And what locks into my mind is that I think we've fully explored uh, this subject, at least for the length of the segment, and can go on to start the length of another segment.
1: Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group?
0: Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu
1: Confidential,
0: combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic
1: horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos,
0: complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Sating
1: journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond
0: Presenting three terrifying settings Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town, and Egypt
1: inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night.
0: Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The
1: Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun.
0: It's time once again to make sure that our uh, passports are up to date and that we've uh, declared Uh, all of our purchases before going through customs because it's time once again for another travel advisory. And this time, Ken, you took a a brief jaunt uh, to a country you were previously barred from. But thanks to Obama, you got to go to Cuba. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. So I gather this was a a quick jaunt as part of a a Florida event trip.
1: Yeah. Brian Dalrymple, who runs the Adventure Game Store in Davi, which is the big... It's a big uh, town near Fort Lauderdale. Um It used to be Cowboys Central in Florida. So if you're thinking cowboys and Indians in Florida, there you go. You could be doing them and Davy would be your Dodge City of Florida. Anyhow, um, he runs a game store there called the Adventure Game Store, which is great and everyone should go buy things from it. Not least because one of the things he does with his game stores profits is fly me down in January or February from Chicago, which while the greatest city in the world is also the grayest city in the world in January or February. <laughs> so I get to go down to the sunny Southland and open my pores up to the sky and drink all the vitamin D and all the vitamin C that I can possibly stand. And while we were down there last time, uh, we discussed the possibility of maybe if uh, things worked out. Um, he has business partners that are, uh, Cuban, Cuban exiles, um, that maybe we want to poke our heads across the channel and see what's up in, uh, the socialist paradise there, 90 miles south. So this time it turns out that you can, with a minimum of fufara, get fairly cheap round trip tickets for a day trip to Cuba. Staying overnight is still a bigger job of work because the tourist hotels are all engineered to extract maximum hard currency from credulous Europeans and Canadians.
0: Yep. That's, uh, that's the, Cuba was all about that uh, long before uh, uh, now.
1: I, I believe that the, the mob provided discount stays for uh, Miami businessmen as well. Oh, there you that go. said, th- that will come back soon enough. But the uh, but the current staying overnight in Cuba is a little prohibitive. So And there's no late night flight back, which I think is a gross oversight on the part of Cuba. But you can go there uh, on a morning flight and leave on an afternoon flight and get about five or six hours there in Havana, which were darned uh, enjoyable, not least because it was 81 degrees and sunny the entirety of those five to six hours.
0: So you've got five to six hours to see things and uh, bring full capitalism to Cuba. Uh,
1: What do you do? Um, Well, first of all, full capitalism was super present there. (laughs) Uh, We had uh, people from other Western nations have been going to Cuba. Cuba for a while now. Yes, and also the Cubans themselves seem to have kept some memory of full capitalism and practice it in their in their spare time and off hours, because we got down to Cuba, and I think almost the first thing that happened after we took the cab out from the airport into the center of Havana was we were going to a specific cigar factory, the Partagas cigar factory, where uh, Will March, beloved game designer Will March, and cigar aficionado. Uh, knew a guy who knew a guy at partagas and we approach partagas and we are approached outside the factory by people who say, Oh, the factory is closed. The workers are all off at a training session. Perhaps you would like to buy cigars from the store. And we said, okay, <laughs> and followed them around the back through a increasingly narrow series of alleys, thinking, well, this will make a darn good anecdote, us getting murdered. When
0: you regain consciousness. Yes.
1: But no, we were, we were taken up the set of stair. If you've seen the movie Taken, you remember the set of stairways that, um, uh, the staircase that, uh, uh, Liam Neeson murders Albanians up and down. It's that, I think it's that same staircase that they have in Havana, but we went up that onto a sort of, Quasi rooftop area, which had a cat and a much larger Cuban who had uh, a knife which was handy for opening the cigar boxes, which were produced. There we go.
0: All these ominous signs, and it just
1: turns out to be a cigar box. It just turns out to be a bunch of cigar boxes, and fortunately we had Will there to sniff and touch them, and so we... Now
0: is the cat also smoking a cigar? The
1: cat is present in case the cat needs to smoke a cigar, I suspect. Um, and also to charm Hal and myself into instantly trusting our, uh, our confreres, our Cuban confreres. But they were, you know, they were just a bunch of guys in Cuba who knew a guy who knew a guy, maybe he had ha- access to some tax stamps and some things like that who can say but money changed hands cigars changed hands and uh as far as i'm concerned capitalism is a well and lively if only on that rooftop in cuba because uh we uh we we got value for money and a lovely story about it as well
0: so was the factory actually closed uh
1: we didn't want to go look and close and and uh shut down that schrodingerian factory box We, uh, we, we decided we would rather not know if the factory was closed. Maybe next time, if we go back, we'll, we'll look in the factory first.
0: So that's how many uh, of your five to six hours?
1: That's a little under one of our hours was, was go up, hang out with the, with the Cubans, uh, do a little small talk. They wanted to know if we were interested in any of the other things that a friend of their friend might be able to provide. We were like, no, pretty much just cigars this trip. And they were cool. Cool. Uh, everyone was, uh, super friendly and, uh, you know, once they recognized that everyone was there to do business, business was done in a positive hands across the ocean way. Our, um, uh, interlocutor was, uh, when he heard we were from America says, America, best country in the world after Cuba. <laughs> and indeed, I saw a ton <laughs> of American flag stuff on the Cubans wandering around in Havana. I mean, I would, I, you know, every now and again, you're like, man, am I in West Virginia? Cause that's like the only other place I see that much American flag stuff is, you know, sort of in, in, uh, in the, in the border south. So I was, I was super, super excited to be in Cuba, first of all, but I was super yes. delighted to see that the stars and stripes have preceded me on my trip. A, a red state is turning into a different
0: kind of red state.
1: I think that is not at all impossible. Then we went, uh, to the Museum of the Revolution, which is the old presidential palace, Batista's presidential palace, which got seized during the titular revolution. You can. Uh, touch the sacred machine gun holes in the in the marble. There's statues of Lincoln and Marti and Bolivar and uh, Juarez of Mexico in the hallway to show the aspirations of the Cuban people. Um, there's uh, a lot of the rooms are sort of preserved. There's a, a, a historical blow by blow of the Cuban Revolution militarily up on in one wing. There's a Che Guevara exhibit at the top where you can uh you can see the uh, stretcher that he was carried out on from Bolivia. So if you are an unknown army's Cleomancer, you want to go to Cuba and nick that stretcher before uh, it is nicked for you by somebody. Um, that is also where I saw the signs on the wall that uh, called Cuba proudly the basement of socialism, because <sighs> someone did not translate what they meant very well. <laughs> Was it supposed to be foundation? I think it's supposed to be the um, uh, the industrial base of socialism. Uh, I see. And instead, it's the basement of socialism. And uh, that was darned enjoyable. But in the back of that, in the back of the Museum of the Revolution, they have the grandma, the yacht on which Castro and his apostles sailed to Cuba to launch the revolution the second time after he'd failed the first two times and then all around the granma they have other things like a flame throwing tank that was built out of a tractor to uh, drive around during the revolution the peasants had sort of clubbed together to build a flame throwing tank there was a shot down b26 from the bay of pigs there was the engine from a u2 that was shot down during the cuban missile crisis lying there in the yard it looked very cool um uh, one of the uh, british built uh, fighter planes that the cubans used to chase off the uh, the FAL, the Free Fighters, uh, the the Liberation Fighters at the Bay of Pigs, so they had one of those uh, fighter planes as well. It was it's it, it's a neat little sort of um, uh, museum of vehicles of the revolution out behind the museum of the revolution. And certainly, if you are a a a, a, a propeller head of any uh, variety, there's something there to to look at and and ooh and ah over. There was also I forget whose car it was. There was a really sweet. Uh, oh, I know, it was a Packard, I think, and it was being used to smuggle revolutionary leaders around in the trunk, and that's why you had a, a sweet-looking Packard there. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great little, uh, vehicular uh, display there. They had a tank, uh, out front or a self-propelled gun that Castro himself fired at one point, so everyone ooze and ahs over that. Lots of pictures of Raoul on billboards everywhere to let you know that the revolution is in the good, if arthritic hands of the brother of the guy who started it, which is just what all true socialists dream of.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's purely in socialistic merit that that happened.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he, he, was, he did actually um, do really, really well on the written portion of the test. Uh, which is, are you the brother of Fidel Castro? He he was the only one who got 100.
0: Yep. Well, it's it's all about branding. Yeah. Uh, so, did you have time for a mojito? Oh, or a yes, I something did. Something of a Hemingway nature?
1: We went to not just any old place to get a mojito. We went to the Bodeguita del Medio, which is on the uh, Empedrero Street, I guess it is. And is where the mojito was apparently created by a, a bartender named Angel Martinez. And La Bodeguita del Medio was a hangout for Neruda and for Salvador Allende, as well as, of course, for Hemingway in the old days. And so, uh, it is even now covered with pictures of famous people who have been there and not particularly famous people, but who are mayors of middle sized towns in Latin America and, um, uh, people who are like Cuban TV personalities there. So it's, it's covered with, with, uh, photos and, uh, there's a bunch of, I think it's like three or four floors worth of, uh, of food, uh, serving places, uh, restaurant rooms. Um, they, they were out of milk the day that we went. So no milk for the coffee, but, uh, they still had plenty of rum and, uh, mint for the mojitos. So thank goodness for that.
0: So these were not like the mojitos I saw advertised in Helsinki, which were, uh, seven up and vodka. No,
1: (laughs) no, they were not. They were not the Helsinki mojitos. These were the original, uh, the original branding with the Havana club, uh, rum. And this, however, uh, I don't want to lead to a false impression, because right now people are getting ready to email us. Havana Club, the original Havana Club, was made by the Bacardi people, and the Bacardi people, of course, famously got chased out of Cuba by said revolution, and some of the rum makers, uh, one assumes the sort of less well-paid rum makers, stuck around and restarted the Havana Club label, uh, although it is the intellectual property of Bacardi, and now that the border is open and you can bring rum and uh, cigars back and forth from Cuba. Bacardi and the Cuban government, I guess, are locked in a lawsuit over who gets to use the Havana Club label. But all I can say is when you're in Cuba, the Havana Club is the proper socialist rum, and it is in fact quite tasty, much as the Stolichnaya was when I was in Moscow in 1984, because I was drinking the um uh, export stoli not the domestic stoli which was lighter fl- fluid and i assume there's also crappy rum in cuba we just didn't drink any of it
0: and so uh, have we come to the end of your 5 6 hours or did you uh, get to squeeze in anything else
1: um, we, we did spend a, a little more time at Bodeguita than we might have. I had, um, a delicious lobster in Creole sauce, which was recommended by our waiter, possibly because it was the most expensive thing on the menu, but also because it was delicious. So, uh, we, we ate lunch there. Uh, they had masa, which was to die for really good Cuban food, obviously. So, so that was a longer, uh, stop off than, than some of them might have been. After that, there was. Um, sort of a degree of getting ourselves together and walking down through some streets and plazas and such. Uh, there are tons and tons of people whose job it is, is to make sure that no gringo leaves Cuba with excess, what, what's called convertible pesos. You change your money from American dollars into what are called convertible pesos, which are not the Cuban pesos. Cuban pesos are like 24 to one to the convertible pesos, but the convertible pesos lets you charge one price for Americans or uh, gringos in general, and one price for Cubans. And so the uh, convertible peso is pretty much just a methodology of of transferring as much hard currency into the Cuban government's hands as you possibly can. And there's a 10% extra screw you tax if you transfer American dollars into the pesos uh, that way. So uh, the convertible peso is sort of the Cuban government's version, when I was in Russia in the Soviet Union, they had special stores where you would go and spend only hard currency, and you couldn't spend rubles in those stores, and that was their way of doing it. In Cuba, they make you buy special pesos with your hard currency, which you then wind up spending just as though you were spending dollars, the things officially pegged.
0: So it's sort of kind of script
1: yeah, basically, but if they note you, you know, gawping around and being all pale, they will assume that you're an American or I suppose they'll assume that you're a European or Canadian up until last year, but then they will come up to you and, uh, they there, you know, you can take a picture with a monkey or you can be kissed by a lady, or you can be, uh, shown a, a, a art thing that they've done, just the very sort of standard street commerce. So that will slow your, uh, approach uh, as will the fact that you're walking through Havana, which is very, very interesting. Um, the degree to which gutted buildings are still just sort of sitting in the middle of downtown is a little unnerving. You would have thought that at the very least the touristy part of Havana would be built up. That is not the case. Um, much of old Havana is still looks very much like the west side of Chicago and not so much like the center of tourist Chicago. And so there's all manner of you know, business activity or just general activity being transacted in and out of these sort of big echoing what in, in, in Chicago or London, you would know are, are squats, but I suppose aren't in in Havana. But anyway, Um and then you get sort of, as you get down closer to the Harbor, you get back down into sort of the hotel area and the older, uh, the museums. There's a, there's a, a square called the uh Playa des Armas, which has an alleged book fair, and by book fair, what they mean is there are three guys selling books, um, from stalls, uh, around the park. And the books that are available are almost the same books, whether they are in the gift shop of the Museum of the Revolution or at any one of those stalls. But I did wind up picking up a Cuban history of, uh, Havana under the mob, which will go nicely with my American histories of Havana under the mob and a history of the National Hotel of Havana, which promises that it will blow the lid off capitalist hijinks in the national hotel days, which sounds great, as well as a book about a Cuban version of the uh, Afro-Caribbean religious uh, tradition called Abakua, which is written in almost impenetrable academic prose, sadly, but will hopefully uncover more delightful things. But there's, there's not a lot of um, variety in what you're offered bookwise, unless you go find a bookstore, which we didn't, in fact, have time to do this time. But maybe even then.
0: So uh, you want to leave us with a Cuban story hook for any game?
1: Um, well, first of all, um, if being taken up the taken staircase onto a mysterious roof doesn't get your story hook running, you are not paying attention. The other uh, strong possibility is that there are you know there's there's all those wonderful unknown armies uh, available art, uh, artifacts in the museum of the revolution and finally um there is just the fact that being in cuba gets your spy uh senses jingling there's all manner of you uh, you you go up and down the uh the streets there's a lot of of course the the classic cars that have been built and rebuilt in various uh degrees and i think that you've probably got a strong possibility that one of those You know, 57 Chevys or 59 Ford Fairlanes that is still driving around the streets of Havana may have um, uh, been, you know, like Christine may have been filled with a ghost in America in the 50s. And that ghost is still off in Cuba now that the boundaries are down and you can start buying and selling again. I assume that some of those collectible cars will come up north and that's where that ghost has been since 1960. That's why they haven't been murdering teenagers uh, every year on prom night. But have had to wait because they've been down in Cuba where they don't have prom night.
0: Oh, well, once uh, we have a murdering ghost car, it's time to uh, close up our travel advisory and uh, get back on the plane and fly back to our next, and in this case, extended final segment. can. What happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen?
1: Babylon is the template on which... That sounds all fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best
0: of Phoenix, now available in PDF, a drive-thru RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews.
1: Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden,
0: right? Indeed they do, Ken, and in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as Fallen Gods, Rune Punk Steam quests, Lamb Chop Love Songs, and the comic strip adventures of lazy, beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert
1: editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many Gaming Wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And
0: don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like Rob Abrazado, Nostra Dunwich, Jason Detman, Yuri
1: Horneman, and Martin Rundqvist. The whir of the projector, the spectacle of the smoke curls rising against the light, and the smell of delicious fresh pop popcorn welcome us once more to the Cinema Hut. And as always, at about this time, and by this time we mean Oscars time, this installment of the Cinema Hut is the extra-wide, double-feature, Ken and Robin's top ten... Of 2016, right, Robert?
0: Yes, indeed, because of course we are not paid film critics, so we don't get uh, all the screeners, and we don't necessarily have time to see everything in time to do an uh, end of year thing at the end of the year. So we do it here uh, around uh, Oscar time, and we're once again uh, thinking about movies. And since we got a lot of movies to talk about, ten each, in fact, I'm guessing. uh, Why don't I kick this off with my number ten, which would be Arrival, directed by Denis Villeneuve, based on a uh, Ted Chang. Uh, short story, a atmospheric piece of uh, thinky SF. I don't think we've uh, had more exposition about linguistics in a Hollywood movie in a long time.
1: Not since Saper v. Wharf, the uh, heartwarming love story in which Meryl Streep played both partners.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, A great uh, Johan Johansson score uh, plays a big part in I think why this is uh, so effective. The uh, early bit of the film in which it's sort of uh creating the sense of what it would be like to uh live in the world if there was alien contact i think is uh really well drawn later on it becomes i think more the typical uh hollywood version of, of that bit of the story but uh, nonetheless amy adams is uh really fab and uh jeremy renner is uh, i think uh nicely restrained and has a, a, a impact. And uh, f- and of course, with great, uh, Forrest Whitaker, it's always welcome to see him and play that game of, is Forrest Whitaker doing an accent, or is he just doing Forrest Whitaker? Or is he
1: just being Forrest Whitaker? But
0: uh, for me, Arrival uh, really uh, hit home as a, an atmospheric, uh, emotionally resonant uh, film uh, uh, with a, a great, uh, cool surprise in the structure. And
1: perhaps we will hear more about Arrival later on for now my number 10 is the handmaiden uh by the lovely and talented park chan wook uh the guy who brought you uh old boy as well as many other fine korean films this one is a erotic psychological thriller con game movie which is also an act of resistance to the japanese occupation as so many korean films tend to be nowadays and a great character piece as well uh, for at least three characters and possibly four, depending on ha- whether or not you count the bad guy as a character or just a plain old bad guy. But I think that he at least reveals more interesting stuff about himself than most bad guys do in most movies. And, of course, it is a masterpiece of filmic control in the sense that there is probably not a pixel on that screen that Park Chan-wook doesn't want you to see in exactly that spot at exactly that time. It is a long uh, drink of water and the um, uh, erotic portion thereof is a good portion of that length. So be warned, don't bring your kids to it. I would recommend that. Um, and don't go unless you are willing to add eroticism to all the other thrills that you're going to get watching The Handmaiden.
0: Robin? That was a number 12 for me. I really like that as well. Uh, the thing about this year is it's been an incredible year for film that uh, quite easily anything on you know my next uh, 11 to 20 could have been on my top 10 another year, and everything's sort of coming and colliding uh, together. I would certainly recommend uh, The Handmaiden as well. Uh, while you're watching it, you're sort of thinking, oh, Park Chan-wook, this isn't, uh, this is a departure for him. It's not as Park chan Wookie as one month. Mu- okay. Oh, yeah, now. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, we were just waiting for that. Now part. it's Wook. I'm going to move on to my number nine choice. Uh, The aforementioned Pablo Neruda is the uh, main figure in a Pablo Lorraine biopic, Neruda uh, from Argentina. Uh, It's sort of a magic, realist, imagined version of Pablo Neruda's, uh, a slice of his life about his, uh, the period in history where he's being uh, pursued uh, by the uh, Chilean authorities and has to go underground and it basically uh, starts with, Uh, him having to go underground and and ends with his escape to Europe and the uh, everything from the color palette to the uh, performance of Gail Garcia Bernal as his uh, perhaps imaginary pursuer is uh, really strong. And uh, it's been an amazing year for Pablo Lorraine of whom we will perhaps talk further.
1: Perhaps we will. Uh, Neruda made 14 on my list. Um, So like you say, really strong year. I think, I could have gone down maybe not quite as far as 20, but I think certainly now to my 17 and said, yeah, any one of these could be in a top 10 list that I would not throw stones at. So your number nine would be? So my number nine is your number 10 is Arrival by Denis Villeneuve. And for me, over and above the fact that someone made a film of a Ted Chang story, which I would have thought to be impossible, and it's a great Ted Chang story, which I recommend, that they made a film of that Ted Chang story, I would have doubled as impossible. And the fact that Amy Adams is able to carry all the layers and all the levels of the character in that story, not just well, but so well that you forget she's doing it until at the end of the movie, you're like, holy crap, she was playing all those parts simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> all those parts of a really, really deep, really, really interesting character. And she did it super well. So for me, while everything you said about Arrival is true, the the the, the production design is, is magnificent. It's got a real strong... You could be here, but it's also sort of off the, the edge of the world in, in the way that a lot of really great SF movies do. But for me, uh, Amy Adams' performance is why this is in a top ten, not in a next ten category. And uh, all hats off to Amy Adams. Uh, Jeremy Renner, as you as you mentioned, does not embarrass anyone. And, of course, who doesn't love Forrest Whitaker? Uh,
0: so I guess that brings me to uh, my number eight. Uh, which is Love and Friendship, uh, directed by Whit Stillman, his adaptation of an uh, unfinished uh, Jane Austen novella. Or Yeah, I think she abandoned that partway through, right? And so uh, this retames Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Zavini, who were in his last days of disco, for a film that finally puts on film the Jane Austen sense of humor that is so much part of her writing that almost always gets alighted away with uh, either usually by sort of period movie fussiness or romanticism. And this is just as tart and vinegary as uh, Jane Austen herself and uh, quite uh, hilarious as well as of course, kind of moving in parts.
1: Yeah. uh, Love and friendship was, was great. Um, Again, no shine on it. it. For me, I think it was like number 13. So it could easily have been in the top 10 and, the degree to which it, like you say, is, you know, transcended what people tend to sort of put Jane Austen in, in soft, uh, velvety corners and, and make sure that she's not damaged in the process of making a film. What Stillman trusts the material and he trusts himself and he really brings the joy of, uh, Jane Austen out. Mine is also a historical comedy costume piece at number eight and it is the nice guys. Uh, directed by Shane Black, starring Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. It is very dependent, I think, for enjoyment on not having seen too many of the trailers. I saw too many of the trailers before seeing it, and I think I enjoyed it less than I should have. Well, thinking back on it and uh looking back on it, I just can't see a flaw to it, though. It's just really terrific. Crowe and Gosling play into each other in a great fashion, very Abbott and Costello in, in terms of being broad comic personalities, but very, uh, human in a way that seventies protagonists are. Uh, the story is a, a classic, the production design, if anything is even more lavish than that of the handmaiden in many ways. And it's really riotously funny and really great action. It's Shane Black at his Shane's blackiest. And I think that, you know, the, the whole, Crime, comedy, thriller, weirdness of the '70s deserves a second look, and it certainly does deserve that one.
0: Um, I enjoyed the byplay between the two leads. I would not uh, rate that uh, nearly so highly. But this is not a segment where we uh, slate the others' choices if they're not on the top ten list. But rather, where we move on, move on to uh, number, seven. And number my seven. number seven is a uh, deceptively uh, light. Uh, but I think, uh, not to be underestimated film by, uh, the master of that, Richard Linklater. Uh, this is Everybody Wants Some with two exclamation points at the end. Ooh. And it's, uh, basically about, uh, he's reliving his own, uh, college experience, uh, moving to Austin. And, uh, it's just sort of about the feeling of, uh, suddenly being thrown into a whole group of new friends in a different scene. And in particular, uh, this, the scene in Austin where you can go to a, a punk show one night and a country, uh, show the next night. And, uh, it all revolves around a, a baseball team and the sort of, the the male bonding that surrounds that. And then, uh, you know, finding that, you know, maybe you have this possible sweetheart in town and that's just sort of delicate feeling of possibility that, uh, you know, kind of occurs one time in your life where you move away and all of a sudden, uh, for a couple of weeks, Everything is in flux and everything can, can change and uh, and be different. So Linklater is a, a master of maintaining attention in something where there is uh, a light narrative and the stakes are just the stakes of ordinary life. Uh, but uh, I think be- because of that, I want to praise that all the more. And that's why it's in my number seven slot. We will perhaps
1: hear more of that classic era of rock and roll later on, but for me, number seven is Women Who Kill by Ingrid Youngerman, which I saw at the Chicago Film Festival and is a 2016 uh, film released, I guess, originally at Tribeca. It is the, as I said, the lesbian Whit Stillman dark comedy noir that you didn't know you wanted, but you can't stop wanting it once you've seen it. Again, the ending, the only flaw to it is it's a little bit abrupt, but throughout the voice and the control and the possibility of seeing many, many more Ingrid Youngerman films. It, it just constantly surprised and delighted me when I watched it. It's still surprising and delighting to me that it uh that I can still think back on it and it, it's just a terrific movie and a terrific example of all of those things, of the sort of stillman-esque comedy of manners, of the noir, and of the sort of true crime meta crime story that we seem to be approaching again in uh the new decade. Uh, so, I think it's it, it's great on all those levels and was super impressive when I saw it at the festival.
0: Has that gotten a, a commercial release yet?
1: I don't know if it has or if it ever will. It's one of those sort of weird indie films and who can say if it will ever have a commercial release.
0: Right. So, this is one of those obligatory moments when we must clarify for the sticklers at home uh, that uh, my rule is to go by... Uh, published uh, newspaper critics rules and go for things that are uh, released in the 2016 calendar year. So that if I see something at the film festival that hasn't yet uh, come out commercially, that it doesn't end up on uh, eligible for the list until it does get that uh, commercial release. So uh, there are things that I saw at TIFF this year that I think will uh, are still on the way and might end up on my 2017 list. Whereas you can with the um, fever and abandon for which you were known Uh, also put on uh, festival picks even if they don't get a release. Even if they don't get a release, that's just the way of the world. A, because some of them don't
1: get releases, and B, because who can wait that long?
0: The next item, in fact, is an example of a uh, film that was uh, at the previous uh, TIFF and then uh, got a release in the spring, and that's The Lobster, uh, directed by uh, the Greek director Yogros Lanthimos. It's his first English-language film, and it has uh, Colin Farrell, redeeming himself for a bunch of uh, draft that he's been in, and he now has a great, subtle performance from him and uh, Rachel Weiss And it's sort of an I- Ionesco-style uh, tale of the absurd like uh, Lanthimos often uh, makes. And the premise here is that the characters live in a society where that if you are without a rom- an adult, without a, a romantic partner for more than 30 days, you are then shipped off to a special hotel resort where you have every opportunity to bond with another of the desperate singles there. But if you don't, at the end of those 30 days, close the deal, you will then mutate into an animal of your choice. And, of course, Colin Farrell has, has selected the lobster, uh, hence the name. And, of course, as in any uh, dystopia, uh, there is a, a, a break against uh, the dystopia, and in this case, a big break in tone. So the first chunk is sort of absurdly comic, and then you enter a more sort of a desperate realm of of escape and resistance. Uh, Some people find the second part of the film too difficult or long, but I think that is precisely part of the point, and uh, that uh, in part is why I really liked The Lobster and made it number six.
1: I did not see The Lobster, possibly due to a Colin Farrell allergy, possibly due to the fact that, as you hinted, there was a lot of movies to see this year, and we can't see them all. Uh, my number six, contrary wise, is The Age of Shadows, uh, South Korean Hitchcockian, neo-Hitchcockian, I guess you'd call it. Action. Definitely
0: neo-Hitchcockian.
1: Uh, action, thriller, train, bottle, story, uh, Very much reminiscent
0: of Hitchcock's, uh, spy films.
1: Yes, uh, reminiscent of many Hitchcock films, actually, sort of all mushed together. Uh, it is, uh, directed by Kim Ji-woon and is a sort of what do you want? To, it's it's not quite sprawling, uh, but it is certainly a episodic
0: piece. Um, it's got in, sort of a Kubrickian structure where there are def, there are big sort of narrative set pieces and there's mm-hmm. big shifts between, uh, you know, the the act breaks are very pronounced. It's right. The, the yeah, kind of switch is what so. movie it is as you go along.
1: And there's sort of a main character who's a police captain who's looking into the resistance, but then there's also the main character who's sort of the um, resistance leader, uh, Kim Woo Jin. And, uh, they have all manner of exciting, uh, sort of cat and mouse and also cat moments throughout the film. And we're trying to figure out, will our Korean police inspector do the right thing and betray the mean old Japanese and, uh, strike a blow for Korea, or will it all turn, Horrible and tragic, and it being Korean movie, you can never tell what's going to happen, but it's certainly very exciting and uh, Kubrick and Hitchcock, we are not merely applying those adjectives just to tell you what kind of film it is in terms of structure, I would say we are applying them also to determine or to uh, indicate the quality of this film. It is a really great movie. It's a crime. It wasn't nominated for the Academy Awards in Best Foreign Picture. But there you go. Hollywood is stupid, not
0: for the first it's, or last not, time. Well, first of all, Hollywood is not to blame for what gets nominated in the foreign category. That's chosen by the countries. No, the country Korea chose this as their entry, oh, which just and wasn't it didn't nominated. Get nominated. Yeah. Well, then in that case it is the Academy's fault because and I suspect the problem is, is that this film is too entertaining and classically formed. Yes, it's too
1: actually good, and so therefore can't be a movie. Yeah,
0: it's, it's not a serious drama. It, it's um, not a...
1: It, there are no... There are no, There is no uh, disease in it.
0: And uh, once again, uh, in another year, The Age of Shadows could proudly be in my top ten, but it was a crazily great uh, year. Oh, it wasn't. These things mm-hmm. happen. Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's going to happen now is that we're going to uh, pop away for a sec uh, for a uh, commercial, grab some more popcorn, and we'll be right back With our uh, choices five through one. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In
1: John Scott Tynes' Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the
0: maker-killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sown from the flesh of the maker of all puppets.
1: The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store
0: shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya.
1: And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such
0: as... Kenneth Hite. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you. Okay, so we're back, and I guess it's time for me to do my uh, choice number five. Speaking of Pablo Lorraine biopics... Speaking uh, of... Speaking of, uh, my next pick is uh, Jackie, which is a... Uh, and I think biopic is not uh, kind of a mis- misnomer because, like all good biopics, it doesn't try to create an entire biography of the subject, and in this case just covers uh, mostly the uh, few days in the aftermath of the JFK assassination with some, uh, well-chosen flashbacks to a TV interview. And it sort of weaves those together with, a, an interview, uh, with the, uh, journalist Ted white. And it's, uh, something that shouldn't work and works brilliantly. And it works brilliantly for a number of reasons. One is the focus, which I've already uh, mentioned. Uh, two, I think is part of the fact that Pablo Lorraine didn't really know much about Jackie Kennedy. Yeah. It would come, at this with uh, fresh eyes
1: and, and already hated biopics.
0: Yes, this was already uh, this is supposed to be a Darren Aronofsky Rachel Weiss collaboration, but they broke up, and uh, I think Natalie Portman uh, may have reason to thank yeah <laughs> thank them for that. Uh, send Daniel
1: Craig a fruit basket. Yeah,
0: and <laughs> so uh, there is uh, her performance is is quite incredible, because she has to get that very uh, specific accent, but and then break through that with a sense of emotion. The um, music by Mika Levy, I think, is part a huge part of the atmosphere of that film and sustaining that mood of uh, mourning and anger. And the script is very cleverly interesting in that it is a multi-layered. It is a myth about making a myth, yeah. And weirdly enough, it's not uh, uh, busting the myth so much as suggesting the necessity of the myth. So uh, uh, Jackie by Pablo R- Lorraine is, uh, I think, one of those kind of. Uh, Works of magic that uh, everything comes together and you can't... Well, I guess I just explained why it yeah, works. But you did. there'd be much more likely for this not to work than for it to work as amazingly as it does.
1: And I saw it, and it is in my top 20, I think around 17. And I agree with you on all of those counts. I think that the script is, or the the actual uh, dialogue, not necessarily the script, but the dialogue is the by far the weakest thing in it. And even... Uh, Natalie can't save it. And certainly Billy Crudup can't save it. So there is, there are moments where you are rolling your eyes where I was uh, at the dialogue, but everything you say about the sort of structure of the film and, and Lorraine's direction and Natalie's performance, absolutely a thousand percent correct. Um it, it began, I think as an HBO miniseries, and you can sort of see a little of that still peeking out of the corners and not everyone brings the quality to it. That Natalie does, or that John Hurt does, as the entirely caricatured character of the priest, who he somehow makes entirely believable because hey, John Who's Hurt. John Hurt. Uh, my number five, by contrast, is Hell or High Water, directed by David Mackenzie. Uh, also, which has a script that is a little too cute for business by Toby Sheridan, Taylor Sheridan, but The performances and the direction really carry it, and when you are talking about a Western, which is what we're talking about, that's more than good enough. This is Chris Pine, probably a career best performance, and his brother, played by Ben Foster, who is even better than Chris Pine, playing Bank Robbers being pursued... Yes,
0: but Ben Foster specializes in being better than
1: the lead. Being better than the lead. <laughs> that's movie his gig. Gets in. Um, and in this case, he is, uh, they are being pursued by Jeff Bridges and Gil Birmingham as Texas Rangers. And they are also amazing. And in Gil Birmingham is not better than Jeff Bridges, but that's just because he knows better than to try to be better than Jeff Bridges, I think, in this movie. But the story is terrific. The the westernness of it, the scene uh setting and the scenery are both magnificent. The sort of unfolding nature of the quotidian reasons for the crimes is terrific without drawing away from the myth it is one of the great films of the great recession and well worth seeing just for that reason it is also remarkably controlled in in the sense that they didn't sort of realize that they had all this stuff and then get sloppy with it it's 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 not even 2 hours long and it's really tight really well put together great movie on every level and uh, the, the the cinematography is just Ah, So great. Like like all good westerns, it has a great cinematographer and a great director and great leads and it almost needs nothing else but it has plenty of other stuff as well.
0: It is now available for digital rental. I missed that while it was in the theaters, but probably, dear listener, by the time you're hearing this, I have seen it. Uh, So, next that brings me to uh, my number four title, which is Manchester by the Sea uh, directed by Kenneth Lonergan with uh, Casey Affleck. It's a uh, sort of a funereal story that uh, comes out of a funeral and uh, also references a, a dark tragedy. So Casey Affleck uh, has to come back to his hometown because his uh, brother played by Carl Chandler has just uh, uh, died at a young age. And uh, there is a uh, teenage son who needs a guardian. And although his late brother didn't run it this by him, it turns out that uh, the Casey Affleck character who's basically living in this uh, sea of despond as a a building custodian is uh, given the job of being guardian, which would mean uh, living in this town which has a dark, tragic uh, past for him and he can't get beyond. It is a a beautifully uh, shot, acted, written, uh, filmed, the score is great, and uh, leavened with a surprising amount of humor and a life, given the heaviness of the subject matter, a lot of the humor comes from the fact that the uh, these Boston Irish characters will escalate an argument from zero to twelve <laughs> in a split second, and then escalate right back down again and apologize. Uh, but it, uh, you know, it's a case of a film that it was in no way uh, overrated in its critical reaction. So if you've been uh, daunted by the seriousness of its subject matter, Uh, know that it is uh, really extraordinarily well executed and full of life and devoid of pretension. So Ken, you're number four.
1: I did not see Manchester by the sea because uh, I was told that it was super sad and have not been in a mood to be super sad recently. I have heard sort of varying things about its quality, but I think that uh, it is on the list of something to see when I am feeling so happy that even Casey Affleck can't make me sad. So like yourself, perhaps In the next little bit, I will get around to Manchester by the Sea. In the meantime, my number four is your number, whatever it was, because it is Everybody Wants Some by the lovely and talented Richard Linklater, who has made almost nothing but movies I love, and this is no exception. It is in many ways his sort of return to the dazed and confused school, in which it is a slice of time, even more than a slice of life. It presents an almost, in this case, almost entirely masculine environment of a college baseball team. Uh, the women are generally secondary characters. They're not afterthoughts because nothing in the Linklater film is an afterthought, but they are certainly orbiting the main m- male bonding, male dyad, male interaction group. Uh, of this college baseball team, one of the many great things about Linklater is that although he is definitely a artist, he understands the importance of sports because he is also a Texan. And so therefore, when he touches on things like the football in Dazed and Confused and the baseball in this movie, he speaks from a place of knowledge and of understanding. And the sort of what you talked about, about the sort of coming to Austin and rediscovering yourself and rediscovering the possibilities, it's, also a movie about the things that are always true about sport and uh, male bonding and, and these sort of eternal verities against this new environment. And that I think is the great overlap that and the beautiful fog of 1980 era AOR rock uh, that uh, suffuses the movie like a marijuana cloud, um <laughs> which also suffuses the movie that makes it. So incredibly magical and perfect. It, it's one of Letters' best. And when you say one of Letters' best, you're definitionally saying one of the year's best.
0: For me, uh, number three is perhaps the most uh, prescient film of the year. And that is Ben Wheatley's High Rise, uh, the adaptation of the J.G. Ballard novel about the inhabitants of a new spanking brutalist concrete apartment complex Uh, set in the late 70s as uh, sort of the harbinger of the the, uh, Thatcher era. And it is about everything going awry. And basically, uh, civilization collapses within the confines of this apartment building. But as far as we can tell, nowhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Irons is the mad uh, scientist or architect at the top of the uh, tower clad in white, uh, whose baleful uh, influence over everyone else is somehow the spiritual trigger for this uh, breakdown of society, or particularly of male society. And uh, the 70s style is uh, brilliantly evoked. Uh, There is definitely a a spiritual kinship to that other adapter of uh, Ballard, uh, David Cronenberg, and it has a great sense of uh, control and mastery. I think it's Wheatley's first sort of uh, big film that takes his sort of savage instincts and uh writes them in a a larger way than his more uh, modest uh kind of chamber pieces and uh is uh, not a uh an easy film to watch by by any means it certainly signals that to begin with uh tom hiddleston is really brilliant in a sort of a passive observer role he's he's one of those protagonists who is uh, drawn into events rather than driving events that's uh, much easier to do in a novel where that character is sort of a stand in for the reader, and the reader can project things onto them than it is to make real in a performance um uh, but Tom Hiddleston, who uh turns on this sort of uh more interior sense than we often see from him, uh does a brilliant job of this so uh the uh, extremely disturbing and uh Unexpectedly metaphorical for the year of its release uh, (laughs) film would be uh, High Rise in number three and its uh, Ben Wheatley. And uh, in a year where
1: I saw neither Terrence Malick film, it will perhaps come as no surprise to anyone that I also managed to not yet see High Rise. But it's on the list, and it will be gotten to. However, speaking of people who released movies in 2016 and are therefore unfairly penalized by it, Richard Linklater can only be exceeded when... The Cohen brothers also released a movie in 2016, which they did. Hail Caesar is my third uh, top movie, my top three movie, my th- number three movie. You're, you're number three. My number three, Hail Caesar, uh, which is uh, a tale of the Christ, uh, literally, in that uh, Eddie Mannix, uh, Josh Brolin, is a fixer for Capital Pictures who goes through a series of uh, trials in the desert of Hollywood and Temptation by Lockheed. And, uh, must decide whether he serves the cause of good, namely making movies happen, or the cause of evil, namely making A-bombs happen. And he chooses, one certainly hopes, the right path. But in the process of that, we have a delirious tribute to, uh, 1951 Hollywood, uh, possibly the only comic turn in history for Herbert Marcuse, which by itself is worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, a bravura musical number by Channing Tatum, uh, and a slightly less bravura musical number by Scarlett Johansson. Also, Your Hand Solo of the Future, Alden Ehrenreich, almost steals the show as a singing cowboy. So when you can put a singing cowboy, tap dancing sailors, Herbert Marcuse, and a mermaid into a film and make it a tale of the Christ. You are talking about the Coen brothers and hail Caesar. It is well worth seeing. It is magnificent. Uh, don't listen to the haters. It is uh, a great Coen brothers triumph and my third best film of the year.
0: My uh, second best film of the year. Uh, and we've reached the point where any of these, you know, the distinctions in quality between these are, you know, it's a tiny gradation. Yes, of it just, it's more Suntilla about personal
1: reaction, really more than anything else.
0: Yes. Um, is Moonlight, uh, directed by Barry Jenkins. It's a a triptych of a movie following the uh, life of a young gay man, and initially you see him as uh, a a boy, and then as a teenager in high school, and then uh, as a a hardened uh, young adult who's uh, the sort of emotional mentor that he discovers in the uh, first act of this sort of good guy drug dealer has left his mark on him, and by the end he's uh, uh, also uh, in the game and has been hardened, but there's still a vulnerability behind them. It's a a character piece that has enormous uh, drive to it, a sense of magic. Even just some of the, um, the sort of uh, transitional establishing shots with music playing, again, have this sort of uh, inexplicable power to them. The uh, performances are uniformly great. The uh, performances by the three actors who play the lead character are uh, really each amazing in their own way and have a continuity between them, even though of course they would not have collaborated. They're not going to be in the same uh, scenes together. Naomi Harris as the uh, character's troubled mother is a uh, really strong and uh, it's just a, uh, a, a true, a uh, beautiful uh, movie that makes you feel not only like you're part of these characters lives, but you're physically there on uh you know, a, a hot night and can feel the weather. It's just a, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, as I said, uh, one of these works of sort of uh, magical filmmaking that I think, uh, you know, transcends its form.
1: And has been nominated for uh, uh, Oscars. So, yes. good for you, it Hollywood. Is the,
0: it, it is the one that, when La La Land wins a bunch of Oscars, I will be able to be additionally mad that Moonlight didn't.
1: <laughs> so, uh, a, a route for as well as a route against what can anyone want more. Yes. Uh, from uh, which, whichever city, is it L.A.? that. Uh, moonlight takes place in
0: uh it's in it's in the south it's like florida and i'm not sure of this look it up readers at home
1: anyway well so much for that segue so on to patterson new jersey where my number two patterson by the great jim jarmusch is my number two uh it is about a week in the life of bus driver adam driver and one wonders if Jarmush said, well, if I'm making a film in Patterson called Patterson with a character named Patterson, he should be a bus driver. I guess I have to get Adam Driver to play him. <laughs> <laughs> but Adam Driver, demonstrating once more why he should have gotten the lead in Silence, plays the lead in this. He is a bus driver who writes poetry. It is about a week in his life in which the, it, it is almost devoid of event, but not devoid of incident. Um, his wife, uh, is played by Golshifta Farani, who is magical. She was the school marm in the Kurdish Western My Sweet Pepper Land, which I mentioned perhaps many, many, uh, moons ago. And she is a free spirit to, uh, contrast with his more constrained bus driving persona. But it is a, uh, a love story about a marriage, which is a great thing to have movies about as well. And is Jarmusch sort of examining a character. Not under stress, but under nothing more than the quotidian stress of living day to day in America. So if you're talking about films that should speak to you, what speaks more to you than get up and go to work again? Uh, and Patterson does so not just well, not just beautifully, but almost mythically. And that is one of the Jarmusch gifts. And when he shares it with us, the least I can do is give him my number two spot.
0: If we had time for digression, I would uh, argue that if Adam driver had been the lead in silence, the film would not have worked, even though yes, of course he acts Adam Garfield off the screen. Uh, I've not yet seen Patterson because it hasn't opened here, but uh, await it with bated breath. And so that brings me to my number one title, which is hail Caesar by the Coen brothers. Um, It is, uh, all of the things that you uh, said it was, it is a a delight of form and play. And as is often the case with the Coen Brothers comedies, actually much more sophisticated and complicated than the uh, critics uh, gave it credit for. And I think is part of why, well, first of all, ordinary people went to see it and were baffled. Don't blame them. Uh, But also I think the critics missed the profundity of this film because it is about, you know, the passing of religious power from the old structure of the church to the new structure of Hollywood. And, uh, as you, uh, indicated, all of the performances are, are delightful. Also, Tilda Swinton, uh, sort of playing both <laughs> Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons as, uh, rival, uh, twin sisters is also, uh, fabulous. And, uh, as you, a great star making role for, Alden Ehrenreich, who is actually the protagonist of the film, if not the main character. He's the one who solves the problems. And uh, a a beautiful, fun uh, puzzle film that is so delightful on its outer surface that uh, the nature of its puzzle remains uh, obscure unless you start looking for it. So, as I said, any of the top four could have been my top one, but uh, I think uh, because of its complexity and elusiveness paired with its incredible sense of fun, is why Hail Caesar nudged out the others to take my number one slot. Well,
1: I certainly uh, can't criticize that choice because it is, as I say, uh, we're in with gradations of response, and besides, you haven't seen Patterson yet. And once more, my idiosyncratic insistence that movies I saw in 2016 count as 2016 movies means that my number one movie is Soul on a String by Chinese director Zhang Yang filming a a uh, Western that could very easily be called Once Upon a Time in Tibet, uh starring the uh, Mongolian actor Kimba. I believe he is from Inner Mongolia, not Outer Mongolia, but he's still Mongolian, playing a Tibetan ne'er-do-well who must take a uh, magical Buddha stone, uh, a G-stone, to the sacred palm-print land, and along the way runs into love and rivalry and neer do in the classic Western structure uh, it is a great Western. It is a great, uh, work of, um, to the extent I'm capable of understanding a work on Buddhist meditation and Buddhist <laughs> philosophy. It's, it's a work on that. It is a good actioner. It has weird, trippy things going on in the story and in the script that will mess you up when you think about them, which is just what you want in this life. And it's just unutterably gorgeous. And I saw people reviewing it in, you know, places that should know better saying well obviously if you made a film look good people will like it better and it's like (laughs) that's kind of the point of making it a movie instead of a radio play you jerks yeah if you have people act good it'll be emotionally effective that's nothing well once you cut once you control for the fact that jang yang merely filmed a gorgeous picture you're obviously left oh right you're still left with a really great movie but Oh my God! I mean, it's it. it John Ford would have given an uh, extra's left arm to be able to film in those Himalaya mountains and do a western. It's just so amazing, just so beautiful, and a really powerful movie in and of its own right. So, Soul on the String, my number one. If it's
0: never released, then haha, who was wrong then, Robin? Who was wrong then? Right. So this is totally a matter of eligibility requirements because if this does get a commercial release in 2017. It has, uh, will immediately rocket to the top of my 2017 list and probably stay there because I also strongly recommend, uh, this film. And, uh, you know, and I'm willing to count like video and, uh, and Netflix because that's because you kind of um, have to. Most now. people see films like this, uh, these days. Uh, but there, that is one film that, uh, if it gets released, will do very well on my 2017 list. Also, The Bad Batch by Anna Lili Amanpour is another film that I saw at uh, TIFF this year, which, and I'm sure it will get a release, and that will also have an inside straight for my 2017 list.
1: And the best so, part is I'll get to count it as a 2017 movie if it's released in 2017, and that's when I see it. So We'll uh, match ah, up on that one. What yeah, fun we, we will have?
0: Uh, so, uh, with uh, having risked a potential spoiler for my number one next year, <laughs> uh, we've once again uh, delivered our top ten list. At, uh, once again, our usual extended length. So, it's time to uh, wave you all goodbye. Uh, We're going to go pull up Twitter, watch the Oscars, possibly tweet a few snarky things. Possibly. And uh, there will definitely be lots of impassioned speeches. We can predict that, if not the winner of any of the awards. Although, Mm -hmm. La La Land is going to win them all. Because it's all about how being a successful actor is the most important thing in the world. And guess who votes on the Oscars? But... I'm beginning to uh, di- digress in the middle of my exit. So, yes, uh,
1: no, no rants during the exit. Save it for your, <laughs> f- save it for your speech after winning, Robin. That's uh, when we one go. rants now. Oh, right. Yes. When we do the Robin Laws tribute here at the,
0: at the Golden Globes, then you can rant. I definitely will. Uh, well, the uh, rant averted. It's time to head on out of this podcast and uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games... Pelgrane Press... Ask Fagelm... Arc Dream... Dork Tower... And Pro Fantasy Software... Music, as always, is by James Seppel. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get
1: Chair priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin.
0: Swap Hemingway stories with such illustrious backers as... Samuel
1: Hawley... Jack Hewlett Steve Sigety... Jacob Ansari... And Shane McLean. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash
0: user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.